Witch of the Demon Seas, Chapter 3 When he came out on deck in the early morning, there was only a grey emptiness of waters out to the grey horizon. They must have left the whole Achaean archipelago well behind them, and be somewhere in the Zurian Sea now. There was a smell of rain in the air, and the ship ran swiftly before a keening wind over long white-maned rollers. Corrin let the tang of salt and moisture and kelp, the huge, restless vista of bounding waves, the creak and thrum of the ship and the thundering surge of the ocean, swell luxuriously up within him, the simple animal joy of being at home. The sea was his home now, he realized vaguely. He had been on it so long that it was his natural environment, his as much as that of the Laredi wheeling on white wings in the cloud-flying heavens. He looked over the watch. It seemed to be well handled. The sailors knew their business. There were armoured guards at bow and stern, and the rest, clad in the plain loincloth of ordinary seamen the world over, were standing by the sail, swabbing the decks, making minor repairs, and otherwise occupying themselves. Those off duty were lounging, or sleeping well out of the watch's way. The helmsman kept his eye on the compass, and held the tiller with a practised hand. Good, good. Captain Amazu padded up to him on bare feet. The Umlotuan wore helmet and corslet, and had a sword at his side, and carried the whip of authority in one gnarled blue hand. His scarred, one-eyed face cracked in a smile. Good morning to you, Captain Corrin, he said politely. The Conohurian nodded with an amiability he had not felt for a long time. The ship is well handled, he said. Thanks. I'm about the only Umlotuan who has ever skippered anything bigger than a war canoe, I suppose, but I was in the Achaean fleet for a long time. Again, the hideous but disarming smile. I nearly met you professionally once or twice before, but you always showed us a clean pair of heels. Judging from what happened to ships that did have the misfortune to overhaul you, I'm just as glad of it. He gestured to the tiny galley below the poop deck. How about some breakfast? Over food, which was better than most to be had aboard ship, they fell into professional talk. Like all captains, Imazu was profoundly interested in the old and seemingly insoluble problem of finding an accurate position. Dead reckoning just won't do, he complained. Men's estimates always differ, no matter how good they may be. There isn't even a decent map to be had anywhere. Corrin mentioned the efforts of theorists in Akewa, Conoher, and other civilized states to use the Heavenfire's altitude to determine position north and south of a given line. Imazu was aware of their work, but regarded it as of little practical value. You just don't see it often enough, he objected, and most of the crew would consider it the worst sort of impiety to go aiming an instrument at it. That's one reason, I suppose, why Shazan shipped only Umlotuans. We don't worship the heaven fire. Our gods all live below the clouds. He cut himself a huge quid of Liangzi and stuffed it into his capacious mouth. Anywhere it doesn't give you east and west position. The philosophers who think the world is round say we could solve that problem by making an accurate timepiece, said Corrin. I know, but it's a lot of gas, if you ask me. A sand glass or a water clock can only tell time so close and no closer, and those mechanical gadgets they've built are worse yet. I knew an old skipper from Nariki once who kept a joss in his cabin and got his position and dreams from it. Only had one wreck in his life, Imezu grinned. 
Of course he drowned then. Look, said Corrin suddenly, do you know where the hell we're going and why? To the Sea of Demons is all they told me. No reason given. Imazu studied Corrin with his sharp black eye. You don't know either, eh? I have a notion that most of us won't live to find out. I'm surprised that any crew could be made to go there without a mutiny. The gang of bully boys is only frightened of Shorzan and his witch granddaughter. They... Imazu shut up. Looking around, Corrin saw the two approaching. In the morning light, Chryseus did not seem the luring devil woman of the night. She moved with easy grace across the rolling deck, the wind blowing her tunic and her long black hair in careless billows, and there was a girlish joy and eagerness in her. The pirate's heart stumbled and began to race. She chatted gaily of nothing while she and the old man ate. Shazan remained silent until he was through, then said curtly to the two men, Come into the cabin with us. They filled Corrin's tiny room, sitting on bunk and floor. Shazan said slowly, We may as well begin now to learn what you know, Corrin. What is the truth about your voyage to the Xanthi? It was several seasons ago, replied the corsair. I got the thought you seem to have had that possibly I could enlist their help against my enemies. He smiled mirthlessly. I learned better. What do we know of them exactly? said Shazan methodically. He ticked the pints off on his lean fingers. They are an amphibious, non-human race dwelling in the Sea of Demons, which is said to grow grass so that ships become tangled there and never escape. Not so, said Corrin. There's kelp on the surface, but you can sail right through it. I think the sea is just a dead region of water around which the great ocean currents move. I know, said Shazan impatiently and resumed his summary. Generations ago, the Xanthi, of whose presence men had only been vaguely aware before, fell upon all the islands in their sea and slew the people living there. They had great numbers, as well as tamed sea monsters and unknown powers of sorcery, so that no one could stand against them. Since then they have not gone beyond their borders, but they ruthlessly destroy all human vessels venturing inside. King Phideon III of Achaera sent a great fleet to drive the Xanthi from their stolen territory. Not one ship returned. Men now shun the whole region as one accursed. Imazu nodded. There's a sailor's legend that the souls of the damned go to the Xanthi, he offered. Shazan gave him an exasperated look. I'm only interested in facts, he said coldly. What do you know, Corrin? I know what you just said, as who doesn't answered the Conohurian, but I think they must have limits to their powers, and be reasonable creatures, but the limits are far beyond man's, and their reason is not as ours. I didn't try an invasion, of course. I took one small fast boat, manned with picked volunteers, and waited outside the sea for a storm that would blow me into it. When that came, we ran before it, fast. In the rain and wind and waves, I figured we could get undetected far into their borders. So it seemed we could, and in fact we made it almost to the largest island inside. Then they came at us. They were riding Ceteria, and driving sea serpents before them. They had spears and bows and swords, and there were hundreds of them. Any one of the snakes could have smashed our boat. We ran for land and barely made it. We hadn't come to fight, so we held up our hands as the Xanthi leaped to shore and wondered if they'd just hack us down. But as I'd hoped, they wanted to know what we were there for, so they took us to the black castle on the island. 
Momentarily, Corrin was cold as the memory of that wet, dark place of evil shuddered through his mind. I can't tell you much about it. I have great powers of sorcery, and the place seems somehow unreal, never the same, always wrong, always with something horrible just beyond vision in the shadows. I remember the whole time as if it were a dream. There were treasures beyond counting. I saw gold and jewels from the sea bottom mixed in with human skulls and the figureheads of drowned ships. The light was dim and blue, and there was always fog and noises for which we had no name hooting out in the gloom. It stank with the vile fishy smell they have, and the walls seemed to have a watery unreality, as I said, shifting and fading like smoke. We could smell sorcery in the very air of that place. They kept us there for many ten days. We had brought rich gifts, of course, which they accepted ungraciously, and they housed us in a dungeon under guard. They didn't feed us so badly, if you like a steady fish diet, and they taught us their language. How does it sound? asked Crisius. I can make it come out right. No human throat can. Something like this. They stiffened at the chill hissing that slithered from Corrin's lips. It has words for things I never did understand, and it lacks many of the commonest human words. Fear, joy, hope, adventure. His glance slid to Chryseus. Love. Do they have a word for hate? asked Shorzan. Oh, yes. Corrin grinned without humor. After a moment he went on. They wanted to know more of the outside world. That was why they spared our lives. When we knew the language well enough, they began to question us. How they questioned us. It got to be torture. Those unending days of answering the things that hissed and gabbled at us in those shadowy rooms. It was like a nightmare where mad happenings go on without ever ending. Politics, science, philosophy, art, geography. They wanted to know it all. They pumped us dry of knowledge. When we came to something they didn't understand, such as love, say, they went back and forth over the same ground, over and over again, until we thought we'd go crazy, and at last they'd give up in bafflement. I think they believe humans to be mad. I made my offer, of course, the loot of a caver in exchange for the freedom of Conoher. They, I might also say, they laughed. Finally they answered in scorn that they could take whatever they wanted, the whole world, if need be, without my help. Shazan's eyes glittered. Did you find out anything of their powers? he asked eagerly. A little. They'd put any human magician to shame, of course. I saw them charm sea monsters to death just to eat them. I saw them working on a new building on the island. They planted a little packet somewhere and set fire to it, and great stones leaped into the air with a bang like thunder. I saw their Ceterea cavalry, their tamed war snakes. Oh, yes, they have more powers than I can name. And their numbers must be immense. They live on the sea bottom, you know. That is, their commoners do. The leaders have strongholds on land as well. They farm both sea and land and have great smithies on the islands. Well, in the end, they let us go. They were going to put us to death for our trespass, I think, but I did some fast talking. I told them we could carry a word of their strength back to humans and overawe our race with it so that if they ever wanted to collect tribute or something of the sort, they'd never have to fight for it. Probably that carried less weight than the fact 
that we had after all done no harm and been of some use. They had no logical reason to kill us, so they didn't, Corrin smiled grimly. We're a pretty tough crew, prepared to take a few Xanthi to death with us, even if we were disarmed. Their killing charms seemed to work only on animals. That was another reason to spare us. One of their wizards was for having me at least slain. He said he'd had a prevision of my return with ruin in my wake, but the others laughed at him at the very thought of a human's being dangerous to them. Moreover, they pointed out, if that was to be the case, then there was nothing they could do about it. They seemed to believe in a fixed destiny, but the idea amused them so much that it was still another reason for letting us go. Corrin shrugged. So we sailed away, that's all, and never till now did I have any smallest thought of returning. He added bleakly after a moment, when silence had been heavy. They have all they want to know from my visit. There will be no reason for them to spare us this time. I think there will be, said Chryseus. There'd better be, muttered Imazu. You can start teaching us their language, said Shazan. It might not be a bad idea for you to learn too, Imazu. The more who can talk to them, the better. The Wumlotun made a wry face. Another tongue to learn, by the topknot of Mwanzi. Why can't the world settle on one and end this babble? The poor interpreters would starve us to death, smiled Chryseus. She took Corrin's arm. Come, my buccaneer, let's go up on deck for a while. There's always time to learn words. They found a quiet spot on the forecastle deck and sat down against the rail. The Irinier settled his long body beside Chryseus and watched Corrin with sleepy malevolence, but he was hardly aware of the devil beast. It was Chryseus. Chryseus. Dark, sweet hair and dark, lambent eyes. Utter loveliness of face and form. Singing golden voice and light, warm touch and... You're a strange man, Corrin, she said softly. What are you thinking now? Oh, nothing, he smiled crookedly. Nothing. I don't believe that. You have too many memories. Almost without knowing it, he found himself telling her of his life. The long, terrible struggle against overwhelming power. The bitterness and loneliness. The death of comrades one by one. And the laughter and triumphs and wild exultance of it. The faring into unknown seas and the dicing with fate. And the strong, close bonds of men against the world. He mused wistfully about a girl who was gone. But her bright image was strangely fading in his heart now. For it was Chryseus who was beside him. It has been a hard life, he said at the end. It took a giant of men to endure it. She smiled, a small, closed smile that made her look strangely young. I wonder what you must think of this, sailing with your sworn foes to the end of the world on an unknown mission. You're not my foe, he blurted. No, never your enemy, Corn, she exclaimed. We have been on opposite sides before. Let it not be thus from this moment. I tell you that the purpose of this voyage, which you shall soon know, is good, great and good, as the savagery of man has never known before. You know the old legend, that some day the heaven fire will shine through, opening clouds, not as a destroying flame, but as the giver of life, that men will see light in the sky even at night, that there will be peace and justice for all mankind. I think that day may be dawning, Corrin. 
He sat dumbly, bewildered. She was not evil. She was not evil. It was all he knew, but it sang within him. Suddenly she laughed and sprang to her feet. Come on, she cried. I'll race you around the ship. Chapter 4 Rain and wind came, a lightning-shot squall in which the brisere wallowed and bucked and men strained at oars and pumps. Toward evening it was over. The sea stilled and the lower clouds faded, so that they saw the great dull-red disk of the heaven fire through the upper clouds, sinking into the western sea. There was almost a flat calm. The glassy water was ruffled only by a faint breeze, which half filled the sail and sent the galley sliding slowly and noiselessly northward. Man the oars, directed Chozan. Give the men a chance to rest tonight, sir begged Imazu. They all worked hard today. We can row all the faster tomorrow if we must. No time to spare, snapped the wizard. Yes, there is, said Corin flatly. Let the men rest, Imazu. Shazan gave him a baleful glance. You forget your position aboard, Corin bristled. I think I'm just beginning to remember it, he answered with metal in his voice. Chrysias laid a hand on her grandfather's arm. He's right he said. So is Imazu. It would be needless cruelty to make the sailors work tonight, and they'll be better fitted by a night's rest. Very well, said Shorzan sullenly. He went into his room and slammed the door. Presently, Chryseus bade the men good night and went to her quarters with the Arinye trotting after. Corin's eyes followed her through the deepening blue dusk. In that mystic light, the ship was a shadowy, half-real background, a dimness beyond which the sea swirled in streamers of cold white radiance. She's a strange woman, said Amazu. I don't understand her. Nor I, admitted Corin. But I know now her enemies have foully lied about her. I'm not so sure about that. As the Conachurian turned with a dark frown, Amazu added quickly, Oh, well, I'm probably wrong. I never had much sight of her, you know. He wandered up on the poop deck in search of a place to sit. It was deserted, save for the helmsman by the dimly glowing binnacle, a deeper shadow in the thick blue twilight. Sitting back against the taffrail, they looked forward to the lean waist of the ship and the vague outline of the listlessly bellying sail. Beyond the hull, the sea was an arabesque of luminescence, delicate traceries of shifting white light out to the glowing horizon. The cold fire streamed from the ship's bows and whirled in her wake. The hull dripped liquid flame. The night was very quiet. The faint hiss and smack of cloven water, creak of planks and tackle, distant splashing of waves and invisible sea beasts. Otherwise, there was only the enormous silence under the high clouds. The breeze was cool on their cheeks. How long do we get to the Sea of Demons? asked Imazu. His voice was oddly hushed in the huge stillness. With ordinary sailing weather, I'd say about three ten days, maybe four, answered Corin indifferently. It's a strange mission we're on, aye, that it is. Imazu's head wagged, barely visible in the dark. I like it not, Corin. I have evil feelings about it, and the omens I took before leaving weren't good. Why then did you sail? You're a free man, aren't you? So they say. Sudden bitterness rose in the Umlotuan's voice. 
free as any of Shorzan's followers, which is to say less free than a slave who can at least run away. Why, doesn't he pay well? Oh, aye, he is lavish in that regard, but he has his ways of binding servants to him, so that they must do his bidding above that of the very gods. He put his jeers on most of these sailors, for instance. They were simple folk, and thought he was only magicking them a good luck charm. You mean they are bound, he has their souls? Aye, he put them to sleep in some sorcerous way, and impressed his command on them. No matter what happens now, they must obey him. The Giaz is stronger than their own wills. Corin shivered. Are you? Pardon, it's no concern of mine. No, no, that's all right. He put no such binding on me. I knew better than to accept his offer of a luck-bringing spell, but he has other ways. He lent me a slave girl from Unlotu for my pleasure. But she is lovely, wonderful, kind, all that a woman should be. She has borne me sons and made homecoming ever a joy. But you see, she is still Shorzan's, and he will not sell her to me or free her. Moreover, he did put his jeers on her. If ever I rebelled, she would suffer for it. Amazu spat over the rail. So I am Shorzan's creature, too. It must be a strange service. It is. Mostly all I have to do is captain his bodyguard, but I've seen and helped in some dark things. He's a fiend from the lowest hell, Shazan is, and his granddaughter, Amazu, stopped. Yes, asked Corrin roughly. His hand closed bruisingly on the other's arm. Go on, what of her? Nothing. Nothing. I really have had little to do with her. Amazu's face was lost in the gloom, but Corrin felt the one eye hard on him. Only be careful, pirate. Don't let her lay her own sort of jeers on you. You've been a free man till now. Don't become anyone's blind slave. I've no such intention, said Corn frostily. Then no more need to be said. Imazu sighed heavily and got up. I think I'll go to bed then. What of you? Not yet. I'm not sleepy. Good night. Good night. Corrin sat back alone. He could barely discern the helmsman. Beyond lay only glowing darkness and the whispering of the night. He felt loneliness like a cold hollow within his breast. Father and mother, his tall brothers and his laughing lovely sister, the comrades of youth, the hard, wild, stout-hearted pirates with whom he had sailed for such a long and bloody time, where were they now? Where in all the blowing night were they? Where was he, and on what mission, sailing alone through a pit of darkness on a ship of strangers? What meaning and hope in all the cruel insanity of the world? Suddenly he wanted his mother. He wanted to lay his head on her lap, and cry in desolation, and hear her gentle voice. No, by the gods, it wasn't her image he saw. It was a lithe and dark-haired witch, who was crooning to him and stroking his hair. He cursed tonelessly and got up. Best to go to bed and try to sleep his fancies away. It was becoming childish. He went down the catwalk toward the cabin. As he neared it, he saw a figure by the rail, darkly etched against a shimmering patch of phosphorescence. His heart sprang into his throat. She turned as he came near. Corin, she said. I couldn't sleep. Come over here and talk to me. Isn't the night beautiful? He leaned on the rail, not daring to look at the haunting face, pale lit by the swirling sea-fire. It's nice, he said clumsily. But it's lonely, she whispered. I never felt so sad and alone before. Why, why, that's how I felt, he blurted. 
Corin. She came to him, and he took her with a sudden madness of yearning. Perias the Arigné snarled as they thrust him out of her cabin. He padded up and down the deck for a while. A sailor who stood watch near the forecastle followed him with frightened eyes and muttered prayers to the amulet about his neck. Presently the devil beast curled up before the cabin. The lids drooped over his green eyes, but they remained unwinkingly fixed on the door. 